Mission Log Supplemental, number 14. The one with Richard Arnold. Outspoken, sometimes controversial, a wealth of Star Trek knowledge. These are some of the words used to describe Richard Arnold, the man who was Gene Roddenberry's assistant and archivist. John and Ken got to sit down with Richard a few weeks back to talk over the original series, The Next Generation, the animated series, and his time working with Gene. All right, so we're with Richard Arnold, and um, you need... I, I hesitate to say you need no introduction, but I want to make sure we get the introduction right. Because to me, you are a Mr. Star Trek. You're the guy that people see all the time at conventions. They know you by by seeing you. Um, and I think people don't necessarily understand your association with Star Trek, your association particularly with Gene Roddenberry. So can you give us that sort of nutshell biographical sketch so we know? Okay, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. Okay. Uh, when my parents began uh, separating and eventually divorcing, um, summer of 1966, mm-hmm. sort of late spring, early summer, um, I needed to escape from the reality of being ripped out of our home and, and having to move and my dad you know, being shipped off and all that. So my mother had, you know, thank God, loads of science fiction books in the house because I'd already read through all of the Hardy Boys and my sisters Nancy Drew. So I needed something to read. And I got through most of her science fiction. Uh, and it was adult stuff. And I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that summer's fall preview guide for TV Guide, uh, there was a blurb for a new science fiction series called Star Trek. And I was already watching Lost in Space and Boys to the Bottom of the Sea. So I was certainly ready for another science fiction series. Uh, Time Tunnel was the other new one that fall. Watched the new Time Tunnel, really, really liked it. Watched the first Star Trek episode, Man Trap. Eh. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was monster stuff, you know, kill the blood-sucking monster, whatever. Right. Yeah, okay, second week, uh, Time Tunnel. Yeah. Second episode of Star Trek, Charlie X. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't parentless, but I certainly, my family wasn't the normal family by that point. So I was... I was definitely in there understanding it, and I was just blown away by it. And nobody had to die at the end. You know, Charlie was taken away. So, yeah, I I was a diehard fan within two weeks of the original series. We moved from Vancouver, where I was born, uh, down to St. Louis in the summer of 69. That summer, uh, the 27th World Con was held in St. Louis. And my cousin, Anne, who was as big a science fiction fan as I was, if not more, um, asked if I wanted to go to the convention with her. I had no idea what that was, a convention. Didn't have any idea. So I went with her and met B. Joe Trimble and her husband, John. And, and I think they had the kids with them. And um, Harold Ellison was there and uh, a lot of other people. Um, and I was just, I was a kid. But, you know, it was like, oh, my God, this is all so amazing. By the end of that weekend, my life had changed. And that, that began, you know, just looking for the next convention. It didn't have to be a World Con. It could be Comic-Cons, whatever. And by 1974, I'm sorry, 1972, when the first All-Star Trek convention was held in New York, January of 72, I was there. I was a dealer up in the dealer's room, you know. 
I was there early and I went up to the committee suite and I was helping fill the bags. I used to get free goodies back then and program books and so on. And Gene uh, and Rachel came in the room and I was like blown away because there's Nurse Chapel with some guy. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what a Gene Roddenberry was, you know, <laughs> at, at that age. No, I wasn't really paying much attention to the credits. Um, and, and you got to remember, there's no videos. There was no um, DVDs. There was, there was nothing yet. So I, you could reel to reel tape it if you wanted to and then play it back later. Uh, so I kind of gushed over Majel a little bit and she introduced me to her husband. And I still didn't click. <laughs> and it wasn't until the next day that I was helping out with the committee um, by getting water and ice and glasses for the uh, table on stage. And here comes Mr. Barrett. And uh, Al gets up there and introduces the creator of Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry. And I was like, oh, my God. <sighs> so embarrassed. <laughs> and he thought it was funny. And by the uh, end of the convention, he'd given me the home address that they used to have up on Leander, the house up there. And we started corresponding. And for the next two years, uh, that was the case. And uh, I, I was running a fan club in, in high school. Uh, eventually ran one in college. And um, at, at that point, I said, you know, to hell with it and moved out to L.A. Because that's where I seemed to have more friends and was certainly happier than I was in St. Louis. I never liked St. Louis. You know. um, and there was no Star Trek at that point. You know, the animated series had already come and gone at that point. Uh, but I just I hung around and I would go over to the office and, and visit. And um, they discovered, Gene and Susan, that I had a very good working knowledge, or as Gene referred to it, anally retentive. Um, <laughs> and or, or what was it he said that I had a, a like depthless cesspool of worthless knowledge or something like that. But <laughs> fortunately for, for him. So uh, I found myself in there more and more. I was running Gracie Whitney's fan club at the time, so I was able to use a spare room that they had. Uh, I could type up the fan club newsletters and do all that. And he was very generous. Um, and eventually, of course, they came to him about uh, doing a second series at the same time that they were going to be doing a new War of the Worlds series. And, and George Powell, we all got together. Yeah, went over to a soundstage where they had built some War of the Worlds sets. And wow. not, nothing ever happened. George Powell died and, and Paramount chickened out and decided they weren't going to become a fourth network. They didn't think it could happen. It happened, of course. Um, and then the series that Gene was developing um, continued, but it was going to be, um, I think, a series of TV movies or whatever. And then Star Wars hit, of course, and it became the feature film, Star Trek, the motion picture. But that was a couple of years, that whole process. I just happened to be there, thank God, through all that time, living across the street from the studio on Plymouth, half a block from the gate. And if they needed me, I could be there in, in minutes, literally, um, which I did. And I would go in for meetings when they were in development on uh, the series that became the movie. And I, I never had a, an actual job. But jump forward 10 years from 76 to 86 when they started developing the next generation. In that time, I had eventually gotten my own office, my own phone extension. I had an overhead number to charge supplies and things to. I had everything but a paycheck, <laughs> everything. <laughs> and, and Gene decided, 
when the next generation was obviously going to happen. The 20th anniversary of the next generation was happening. Star Trek Four, which looked like it was going to be very good, and it was, uh, was happening. He decided it was time they started paying me. So after 10 years, I became officially the studio's resident Star Trek expert. So that, that's kind of cool. You've, your career, you've had a foot in fandom and a foot in the professional world of Star Trek, which obviously gives you a very unique perspective. And I should note to our audience that Richard is one of those few people that I know who does. He's not kidding. You have an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek. It's shocking. Well, it scares the writers. Yeah, well, really and you yeah. told me one time that yeah. you know you were the guy that they would call yeah. to ask about trivia, to ask about an episode, to ask about a character name or or a detail. Um, well, not just the, the writers on the show. Um, mm-hmm. I got a call one day from Eddie Murphy's office. Uh, he was working on a film. He wanted to be able to walk into the room in in the film as his character, and there was was going to be a TV on. And he was going to see a Star Trek episode, and he was going to name it like that. You know, that was something his character could do, was name an episode in so many seconds. And he wanted the one where Kirk was um, having sex with a green woman who then turns into a monster and tries to kill him. And I said, never happened. <laughs> and, and his assistant said, well, no, no. He, I said, no, 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 he's mixing two episodes. And Eddie picks up, and he says, come on, man, you know the one I'm talking about. You know, the green whatever, whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, that's whom God's destroy. The beginning of it, she then pulls a knife out and tries to kill him, but she mm-hmm. doesn't turn into anything. Mm-hmm. You're thinking of the salt vampire from Man Trap, episode six, where she turns into the salt vampire, Nancy Craig. It goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that saved his staff watching 79 episodes to find <laughs> what he was looking for. So that's, that's why I was there. I was there for the whole lot, not just for the show. So the, the books, the merchandise, the promotion, marketting, all of it. I was there for all that. The nerdy collector in me has to know, what was on your dealer's table in 1972 at that first convention? Because this um, is pre-Migo. Some <laughs> of the novels. Okay. Uh, and, and the Blish books were still coming out at that point. They were only up to like number five or six yeah. at that point. Um, I had made up, illegally it turns out, bumper stickers <laughs> and coasters. And um, I'd been getting film clips from Majel at Lincoln. Originally, I got them from... Um, B. Joe and John in, in uh, St. Louis in 69, but by 72, I was buying them directly from Majel, and I was framing them up, cutting them up and framing them up and mm-hmm. selling them for a quarter, which B. Joe couldn't believe because she could only get a dime for them. I said, but you got to frame them, <laughs> you know, and you got to have them displayed right. And and back then, the color was still amazing. Now it's all faded to red. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what was on my table. Uh, eventually, Paramount threatened me, still living in St. Louis. Um, because I was selling something without a license and it was violation of their copyright, et cetera. And, and they discovered to their horror they were threatening a minor. And um, instead, they offered to sell me a license. So I licensed, not the film clips, because le- legally Majel could sell those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could resell them. But the bumper stickers and the coasters and the matches and the other stuff I was making up, postcards. God, they were great postcards. I could sell them under license. The license was $100. Oh, wow. <laughs> So things probably have changed. The cheapest one bit. ever sold. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Back then. Yeah. <laughs> There's a change that happens, it seems to me, in season two. And forgive me, but you know, where where you've now been uh, held up as the encyclopedia of all knowledge about Star Trek, I've got a question. 
it's it's in the, like about the middle or towards the end of season two that we start to see Star Trek kind of have a history. And I mean, uh, you know, Kirk will call back to something that happened a few episodes ago or, you know, Kirk will call back to something that happened in the first part of the first season. Up to that point, I joked with John, up to that point, it seemed like you were dealing with like a, a crew that had amnesia every week because nothing that ever happened before uh, affected what they did. W- was there a reason that all of a sudden, I don't know, halfway it turns out through the original series run, they start going, hey, you know, we've actually been in space for a while. Maybe we can reference that. Well, it, it was selective. I mean, you got to remember that in, in the third season, at the beginning of the third season, the Romulans have a cloaking device and they act like they've never heard of such a thing before. <laughs> and it's just, it's this huge thing for them to get it, this new technology. It's like, right. it's not new. Don't you remember the first season? But no. <laughs> uh, no, uh, actually, a, a lot of that was because they started early in the spring shooting for September. And they hadn't been on the air yet and they were already through more than a dozen episodes. So that the people who were being brought in to write, uh, and Gene wanted, you know, good, solid writers, and he wanted people from the science fiction community, there was nothing to show them. You know, there was, mm-hmm. there was all the scripts they were working on and the episodes they were cutting, but there, there were no, you know, anything had, nothing had aired, n- nobody was a fan yet. Um, by the time they ended the first season, you know, people were now, I think David Gerald certainly would be a case of having seen the show, wanting to write for it. And then you could start having, when the second season began, people referencing things that had come before. But Gene actually didn't want a lot of that. He, he didn't want a lot of referencing. He didn't want it to be a soap opera. He wanted all the stories to stand alone. You know, his, his attitude was the writers should come in, use the writer's guide, write their story, not use any other references, and have it as a standalone. And, and that's what made DS9 a totally different show. Because it was a continuing story. It was all about the characters, not about the, the situations. You know, it was character-driven instead of plot-driven. Um, that had never been allowed on uh, The Next Generation or on the original series. And it was something that all the writers so desperately had wanted to do. And once Gene was gone, you know, they were able to do it. You kind of have to do that with Deep Space Nine as well, because I, I remember when they first announced Deep Space Nine, I was like, well, this is no good. They're going to be sitting there. <laughs> oh, I mean, do you remember can't... Jonathan Frakes' comment? I no, no, no. What did he say? When when they first were announcing Deep Space Nine, the, the ad copy I'm sure you remember was "It waits," and there was an image of the station in space, and, mm-hmm. and it waits. And Jonathan Frakes said, "Deep Space Nine, it sits." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because hmm. I mean, you know, Gene used to say. That you know, science fiction has to have some respect for the audience. You can't expect a sitting thing, everything to come to it. Right. You know, be it a planet, be it a ship, be it where everything can't. It really has to go to. And that was a lot of the problem that the writers of DS Nine had the first couple of seasons, because everything had to come to them. Right. And it wasn't until they finally gave Cisco a ship, made him a captain, got him off the station. You know, and away from his job as like a hotel manager, because that's that's basically <laughs> what he was doing. Right. Yeah, right. So, one of the reasons that we had originally started talking about Mission Log, I reached out to you uh, during the first season when we were recording Who Moans for Adonais or Adonai, depending Adonais. on your pronunciation. Yeah, Adonais, yeah. and um, 
there's this troubling line in there where uh, we've constructed this episode where we're really grappling with man's relationship to God in what is ostensibly a a, a humanistic vision of the future. And then Kirk throws in this line of um, we we have, uh, I'm sorry, we, we only, we find the one God to be sufficient. Right, and and it it really does undermine a lot of what has come before. It undermines the whole episode, actually. So I reached out to several people and I said, "Hey, what gives?" And and we had a bit of a conversation about whether or not this had been kind of, you know, driven down the throat of the creators of Star Trek as sort of a gimme to the audience to say, "Well, it's okay. There's still nice, respectable Christian men on board this ship." But something out of that conversation that you and I had led to this. You said, "Hey." I really want to talk about bread and circuses. This is also a troublesome episode <laughs> when it comes to the, uh, the the construct of Star Trek and and its vision of the future, humanist, religious, etc. So, I, I pose it to you: What gives with that episode? With who mourns or with bread and circuses? With bread and circuses. Because I wanted to respond to who mourns as well. Okay, so let's talk about that one first. Then. Directors and actors would sometimes make changes on the set. By the time of the next generation, I'm talking the original series, yeah, by yeah. the time of the next generation, there was a law put down. Absolutely no dialogue changes, not one word, before they called the production office. And if, if it was something that they felt they needed to run by Gene, they would. But for the most part, Rick was very good about you know, keeping it, and, and the script supervisor on the show, Cosmo Genovese, really good about keeping it absolutely as written and not letting the directors change things and not letting the, the actors change things. And when I say the actors, I mean Patrick and, and Brent and so on, not guests. Although occasionally people would come up with great stuff and rarely they would allow it, but only if everybody agreed that that actually worked better. But So there were a couple of occasions during the original series where Gene's very clear instructions in the writer's guide about we do not, you know, support, condone, whatever, any specific religion. You know, we have to keep away from those references mm-hmm. wherever possible. I think there were notes on his copy of the script that he sent out to everybody for um, Balance of Terror. When we were in the chapel and they were getting married, right. absolutely no religious symbols or dialogue. That it had to be as generic as possible so as not to offend anybody. Or at the same time say, you know, we're this or we're that. Right. Right. Yeah, so, you didn't want to have like an endorsement. Right. So, yeah. you know, for the most part, I think that the writers who were working, uh, because Gene was rewriting so much of it anyway, <laughs> um, and, and the directors and the actors, I think for the most part they got it. that This, this is what Gene really wanted. But by the second season, it was already really starting to wear on him, the, the stress. And, and he and Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman – just to keep from going absolutely insane would take time off now and then. Um, I'm not sure because I know that there had been some changes on who mourns for Adonais. Originally, um, at the end of the episode, McCoy scans uh, Carolyn Palamas and she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. question is, is it going to be human or God? Or, right. You know, whatever, right. But that was broadcast standards did not want that in the episode. <laughs> that was cut. Um I can't imagine them convincing Gene that he had to put in something about one God being enough. I can't imagine it getting by him. Um, 
I can't imagine him saying that that would be okay. That's just, that wasn't Gene at the time, and it certainly wasn't Gene later. Yeah. Um, but by the time we got to Bread and Circuses, and when I say we, I mean as an audience. Sure. I think most people understood that the show wasn't um, Christian right or, you know, it also wasn't screaming atheist left. I mean, mm -hmm. it was definitely uh, showing respect, but at the same time, not condoning any specific thing. Um, they always shot bridge first. Same with the next generation. You know, they would finish the bridge on any episode and then move on to the other sets and, and, and meanwhile, they're constructing whatever planet sets they need on their swing stage. Uh, and then they move there. <clears throat> and, and then they go back and start the bridge again and, and, and so on. So with Bread and Circuses, obviously, they went off on location. But they shot all the bridge stuff first and anything else they needed on the ship, which is very little for that episode. You don't go back and reshoot, not when you're under such pressure from the network to get the stuff out as fast as possible. They, they did not have the seven shooting days that the next gen had. They had six, and and then eventually they were like being almost forced to try and do it in, in five. It, it didn't happen often, but they, they tried. Third season particularly, when Charles Bluedorn, or end of the second, uh, and all the third, uh, when it became one company, Gulf and Western bought Paramount and Desilu, right. and they wanted to know why the show was costing so much. And they were saying, you know, Lost in Space, costs or whichever series i think it might have been voice the bottom of the sea costs so much less and, and gene had to explain very patiently and very detailed several pages single spaced you know they don't have to do this they don't have to do that they, you know they're set in the same time that we are now we have to create all our costumes etc cetera, etc cetera. so he explained why it had to cost more but they still pared down their budget it's pretty awful i think they I think they were doing it for just over $100,000 an episode, which wow. is, is horrifying now. Yeah. That's the food budget now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, unfortunately, Gene and Gene, Gene Kuhn and, and Gene Roddenberry, were taking a break. And th this is a story that Gene told me, uh, Roddenberry, because Gene Kuhn died before I came out to L.A. Um, and he told me that, that they had taken a break and they came back and they didn't even know it was – that they had shot that scene that way, even though it was the end scene for the episode, it was something they shot at the very beginning before they got back. So it was already in the can. Right. And I seem to recall Gene having gone out to the location at some point. I don't think he was even aware that this had changed. So it was one of those, oh God, how did this get biased? Because when Uhura says that one of their commentators on the radio was trying to put down their religion but he couldn't right and and kirk just says getty says no it's not because it was the sun in the sky it was because it was the son of god and they all had that knowing oh look it's like oh <laughs> lord that is not this show and and of course it wasn't um it wasn't it wasn't the only time that things you know got by um it certainly it was a story that gene and Gene had written themselves. So, I mean, it's not something that either of them would have put in. Mm -hmm. um, when they, I mean, they were so busy at the time. They turned the script over to a writer named John Noble, Noble, however you pronounce it, K-N-E-U-B-H-E-L, something like that. Um, and he 
added some things to it and, and sent it back. And they said, okay, go ahead and, and do it in first draft. And he did. And then he sent it back and they said, okay. And then he started to work on, on finalizing it and it was just too much and his health wasn't good. And he finally said, look, I just, I can't do this. I can't do this. So he turned it back to them and they then uh, went back and started from their original story. And uh, Gene Kuhn uh, took it through first draft and turned it over to Gene, who then kind of rewrote it and, and did the final version. And the, the writing credits on it should have been um, story by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, um, teleplay by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, whatever. I mean, Gene never really battled that much for credit. He didn't need it. So they, they find out that the Writers Guild is, is going to do an arbitration on that script. And they're like, Why? Because John Noble wrote the, the script and they said, no, 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 the, the one that he turned in and then turned back to us, we didn't use. We went back to our original and, and we went from there. We didn't, didn't use his script. Mm. And despite Gene making it extremely clear what the entire genesis of, of that script was, the Writers Guild still went with John Noble and gave him the story credit, even though it was not his story, it was their story. And only gave Gene Rodbury and Gene Kuhn the uh, teleplay credit. Wow. So, yeah, it was it was not a happy, you know. I mean, I think we talked about the other one, Private Little War, yeah. where again uh, they had turned it over to Don Ingalls, who you know did, did a good job on it, but it wasn't it wasn't what Gene wanted. Gene, you know, he wanted to make his comments about Vietnam, et cetera. So he he ended up having to rewrite it, um, but did not try to get the writing credit for it. But Don Ingalls was so angry with Gene that he took his name off of it and used the name Judd Crucis, uh, Christ, Christ on the cross, because right. he felt he'd been crucified by Gene <laughs> and didn't speak to him for years uh, because wow. of that. And, and yet Gene, he still got the money for it. As John Noble got to keep his money, even though he never actually, they never used anything that he did. And, and this happened over and over. Look at Harlan Ellison's sure. City and Nature Forever. Of um, you know, that was, was very, very heavily rewritten by um, not just uh, staff writers, but by Gene himself. And yet the only credit that you see is Harlan Ellison. And he, and he got all the money, and, and yet, you know, it was not his story. And to this day, he cries about how heavily it was rewritten and, you know. Forgive me, but I'm I'm missing how that whole thing got in there, though, because, I mean, the pun, and apparently the one thing that we learned in this episode is there are very few puns in the 23rd century because nobody picked up on the sun-sun thing, but, I mean... Oh, no, that's not a pun. What would you call that, then? Because, I mean, they, when they, they have the whole thing where they say, you know, uh, well, uh, the word of the sun is that all men are brothers. Well, if you spent 10 minutes in a church... You know, in the twenty twentieth, twenty first century, uh, you've heard that as far as you know, being uh, the Christian reveal at the end didn't feel like that much of a reveal to me, and yet you know the characters there didn't get it. But my point is, well, that's I mean, because your twentieth century. Okay, okay, but <laughs> yeah. even if we go ahead and 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 assume that all of that, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. That that. I don't want to say pun. I don't want to say pun. I don't want to say joke. Right. That terminology goes all the way through the show. And then the sort of smiley reveal to the crew of the Enterprise at the end, 
I mean, maybe they didn't mean for it to be smiley, but I mean, that's a thread that runs all the way through this story, no matter who wrote it, right? Uh, no, I, I don't agree there. Um, I mean, their misunderstanding, that's why I like to use that term, they all misunderstand that they are sun worshippers because you see an image of a sun. And I think that's what got them off on the wrong foot. And it's only at the end that she explains, no, 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 it's not the sun in the sky, it's the son of God. And, and you know, Uhura, okay, maybe her background, possibly, I don't know. Um, she was the, what was it, the United Nations of Africa, whatever, was, mm-hmm. was her background. But um, possibly. But, but um, Spock and, and Sulu and Chekhov? And, no, no, no. I don't think their backgrounds, I, I, I think it would have been something of a surprise to, to all of them because that's not the way they think. Right. No, it's not the way their characters think. No, I agree with that. What I'm yeah. saying and what I'm saying is the script was written by somebody. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like the, the tacked on ending, you know, got past Gene and Gene. No, as but you I, say. Think, I think that got changed on set by either the actors or the director because Gene, again, it was something that got by him that it was too late. They couldn't go back and reshoot it. And his excuse was that he and Gene had taken off for a break. I, I don't think that's the script they handed the actors. And unfortunately, when Gene died, I had all of his original series scripts in my office and the studio grabbed all of them and and i knew they were shredding all of my scripts from the next gen because all all of my notes were in them and it was it was a way to sort of um get rid of any evidence that i had any input on on any of it wow of course my name was in the credits because they really couldn't do much there but um oh they could have gone back and changed the credits and all of them god knows they're doing all the special effects now um but um his scripts, I, I called Majel and I said, oh, my God, they've, they've grabbed Gene's scripts. And I was worried they were going to shred them. But no, what they did was, because they had none in their own files, the studio. Uh, they took all the um, Brads out and they copied them all and made copies for the different divisions that, that needed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Majel was really upset because, of course, she could have sold them to them. Um, but no, they did it on their own and then they finally returned them to her. Wow. So somewhere in... Um, Rod's archives somewhere should be a couple of boxes, file boxes full of all of Gene's old scripts. And in, in one of those would be how the actual ending was. That's something for us to look out for. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. do get to go through the archives every now and then. And <gasps> sometimes things turn up. Yeah. I, I want to get through all those yet. boxes of film clips that they still haven't cut up from the right. original series. Right. right. I don't care how faded they are. I, I actually, Raina and I were over at some point. And I was, I can't remember what I was looking for, but here's all these boxes on a pallet. And I'm like, oh my God, there's still this much. And I just picked one up and was looking and it was, it was an outtake, something, a blooper, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, please let me go through all this. And I couldn't. It would have taken months yeah. to get through all that. So, you know, I, I wanted to approach that with uh, bread and circuses because th- this kind of comes back to the bigger questions that Ken and I have when we do this show. And, you know, one of those is sort of trying to match up Gene's personal philosophies with what then got expressed in Star Trek. I wonder if you can address that a little bit because you knew him well and you, you knew him as a friend. You knew him as a coworker, as a boss. A mentor. A mentor, yeah. Um, yeah. And... Uh, you know, you're painting a picture, which I think we've discussed on the show before, about the original series having 
a lot of influential hands in it. And even like you said, which I'm surprised just knowing how production works today, that cast members or directors could and would change lines on set. Um, sometimes they've changed the meaning of, of a scene or an entire episode. But where where does Gene kind of shine through and, and where does maybe he not? Uh, his involvement, uh, certainly in the first season, pretty much every script um, ended up under his pen being heavily rewritten. And, and again, it wasn't for the money or anything. You know, um, I, I think he got paid for doing rewrites as just part of his job. But by the second season, they were getting better writers. Um, the people who were coming back who had written already um, already knew the, the way to do it. He didn't have to do as much of that. By the third season, he'd had such a huge blow up with NBC, he basically had walked away uh, and was dealing with it remotely and wasn't as involved. Um, with the script process. He was still involved, but, but not to the extent that he had been. And things, again, on the set, because he wasn't on the set as much, um, I mean, you look at an episode like uh, Plato's Stepchildren, it's embarrassing. And, you know, the, the network had its concerns. Jean Messerschmidt um, had her concerns. Um, they didn't want it to appear uh, as though they were being unkind to Alexander because he was a dwarf. You know, they had to be very sensitive there. Um, Gene was very aware of... Uh, there were problems in the script, and he had his notes, and, and I think um, Gene had hers, and, and some of the network had theirs. And oddly enough, it wasn't about the black and white issue. That wasn't the problem. There was, a, a I think, a yeoman uh, who Kirk was supposed to be uh, being amorous with before he then, before she spins off. And there was like almost sadomasochism mm -hmm. involved. And then in comes Uhura and, and they're forcing them to kiss. And again, the broadcast standards, the network sensors and so on, the, the issues were, um, we've got to be careful. This doesn't look like rape or, or anything like that. But, no serious concern about, you know, she's black, he's white. Uh, if anything, it was Spock was alien and, and Chapel was human. And this was interspecies. Forget right. interracial. This was right. interspecies. So, no, I mean, at the time, you know, even though there was concern about how things were shown, and, and it did have to be kind of reined in because it was a little too much, um, that was the particular issue. And, I mean... Things have gone the other direction, actually, with Gene. Can I kind of go out of the where yeah. you're actually working here and yeah, yeah, give you yeah. a TNG story? Absolutely. Okay. First season, TNG. Gene has uh, getting him to even do the show required the studio to give him 100% creative control, which he'd never had on the original series, and and that's why things got onto the show that, that shouldn't have. So he didn't want that to happen again. He didn't want anybody from the front office so much as sending him notes. Nothing. He, he wanted to be left alone. Hmm. We're getting towards the end of the first season, and everything is going fairly smoothly, even though there's that revolving door of writers and producers. The show is doing well. The, the ratings are good. The audience is there. 
Okay. They're up to the episode conspiracy. Tracy Torme. Okay. Wonderful writer. Great guy. Gene gets notes from Mel Harris, who was then the head of uh, television at, at Paramount. She, not she, not the actress. And the notes were that the ending where Remick um, is sitting in the chair and the creature crawls up and down his throat sure. and, and they explode his head off and right. open the chest and out come the guts and, and all the creatures and the mother creature and all that. Okay. It wasn't that bad originally. But it was it was there. And Mel thought that it might be a little violent. And Gene calls up Tracy and says, I need you to make the ending more violent. And Tracy Tracy says to me, That seems kinda odd. And I said, I'm sure he has his reasons. Go ahead. You know, so he does. And and he takes it closer to what it ended up being. And here comes another memo from Bell Harris. You know, oh my God, this is even worse. You really gotta tone it down now. And Gene calls up Tracy, okay, I need you to make it even more violent. <laughs> and Tracy's definitely at a loss now. And I said, I think I know what's going on. Go ahead. So he's got Remick's head exploding. He's got the guts pouring out. You know, it's just <laughs> horrifying. And Mel gets it. And he goes, okay, Gene, I got it. I got it. I'm sorry. You're right. Shouldn't have said anything. You can take it back to where it was. <laughs> no. Gene... That's the way they shot it. Wow. It was the only Star Trek episode in the history of Star Trek that went out with the parental guidance warning. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't think a lot of fans realize that. Yeah. <laughs> and that was him basically saying, don't f*** with me. So, yeah. Yeah, like that Pepsi-Cola speech <laughs> in Mommy Tears. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, he had had enough interference Network, studio, other writers and producers. He wasn't going to go through that again. So I, I think, you know, you look at the original series. There are things in episodes and the animated for that matter mm -hmm. that he probably wouldn't have allowed had he had more control, had he been there more. It, it was really damaging his health um, and, and his relationship with his family that – that he was having to work so hard. They all were. It wasn't just Gene. Everybody on the show were having to work really, really long hours. Um, but he was trying to make the best show he could for himself. Right. Uh, and he hoped the audience appreciated it. But he never believed in making a show for the audience. He believed in making it for himself. And he used to say at conventions, you know, if you turn in and you don't like it, change the channel. But don't tell me to change it to suit you. And he, he said at one convention, he said, if I made Star Trek the way that the fans wanted it, it would be <laughs> that they had to trust him. And again, if they didn't like what they saw, they could always watch something else. I respect but, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he said, any writer, I love this, any writer who makes what the audience wants and not what he believes in is a prostitute. So let's take this line of thought and I want to kind of change the context of Star Trek a little bit and talk about it in terms of the fans and the philosophy, because th this is a conversation that Ken and I have and, and Rod and I have and Rod and Ken have. And, and it, it goes something like this, you know, over the years, 
the fans of Star Trek have taken to this philosophy. And that's the thing that they cite over and over again about why has Star Trek lasted so long? Why does it have the impact that it does on people? And they say, well, it's the philosophy, it's the vision, etc. Um, and what we try to do on our show is figure out exactly what that philosophy is and whether it's real or not, whether it's intentional or not, um, or is this a sort of a byproduct of fan interpretation? You know, um, what do you think were Gene's intentions in that regard or the other writer's intentions in that regard? And are, are the fans getting it right or are we getting it wrong or is the truth somewhere in the middle? I mean, yeah. Just in asking the question, I wanted to go off on about 20 different answers because there's so many different things that, that yeah. come to mind. Um, certainly, if we, if we step back and look at it, Gene was a science fiction fan. Um, he was making his living writing cop shows and westerns. And, and as he used to say, the, the point of those shows was to establish a bad guy and kill them at the end. And, and he just didn't enjoy that. And that's why writing for Star Trek for him was so much more pleasant. Because you could tell a story about the human condition and you didn't have to kill people. Uh, and you could express, you know, philosophy and, and um, your hopes for not just your little corner, not just America, but for all humankind. Um, I don't think he understood himself why the first series was so successful. Star Trek was considered a failure by just about everybody. Um, uh, only recently has uh, NBC or, or Nielsen, somebody has finally released the actual ratings of the original series. They were better than they admitted. Okay, hmm. But they, they basically were telling Gene that the show, you know, one of their excuses for cutting the budget, I'm sure. Uh, so as far as he could tell, professionally, as a producer working for a network and a studio, his show wasn't that successful, but he knew from the second or third week that it, it had touched people in a way that nothing else he had done. And he told this story. Um, I think we were in the dining room at Paramount. He said that when they told him that he was going to have a building named after him, the, the Gene yeah. Rodbury building at Paramount, he said that that was, the first time since the, the second or third week of the original series being on the air that he had been so moved by something because he said he was at Nicodell's having his lunch and the people in the next booth were excitedly discussing the episode of Star Trek from the night before. <laughs> and, and that was for him like the greatest thing that ever happened. And then they give him this building. But at the building dedication, I got to tell you, <laughs> he was – you know, he was in a wheelchair. At least he, he got out of it when we got to the uh, the exit. And, and he walked up the stairs and sat in the chair and, and stood next to the sign for all the photos. And then we sort of got him into the chair. He collapsed into the chair and we got him back to his office. Um, but he was only supposed to cut a ribbon. They were going to introduce him, all the cast from the next gen, all the cast from the original series. He was supposed to cut the ribbon and that was it. Applause, applause, everybody leave. Okay, no. He gets up there and, and he was having difficulty speaking. You know, this, this was only a couple of months before he died. Um, they had no mic handy. Uh, I mean, there was one there, but there wasn't one on the platform. So Gene turned and sort of put out a hand shaking a little. 
and and somebody scrambled and got the mic and handed it to him. And he hadn't cut the ribbon. He said, you know, they haven't even offered me an office in this building yet. <laughs> got a big laugh. And I could see Mel Harris sweating. Okay. And then he he turned as if he was going to cut it. And they turned back and he said, well, I really shouldn't say that. Paramount has given me space all these years um, where I can, you know, work and, and explore things in my mind. And, and, and they've paid me very well. Uh, and I really shouldn't say anything like that. And then he turned and he turned back and he said, but they've made far too much money themselves. And that's something we're going to be talking about in the future. Oh, man. oh my. And I thought Mel Harris was going to faint. Yeah. Right. So anyway, he finally then cut the ribbon and every, everybody <laughs> applauded. And that was the end of that. But uh, no, he still had feistiness in him at the very end. I mean, he, he had had to put up with so much crap yeah. over the years from you know, from the original series on. And, and if you've ever read, Dave, read David Alexander's biography, uh, not auto, but, but authorized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. biography, um, Star Trek creator, um, the, the problems with the books didn't start, you know, with the next generation. It started with the original series, certainly long before, you know, myself or Susan or anybody who worked with him on Next Gen was involved. Dorothy would have been there back then. Um, his problems with licensees, his problems with the studio and the network and with other producers. You know, he always had those problems. But with The Next Generation, he got to put out, you know, stories like Who Watches the Watchers. Right. Where, and, and by the way, that script was nowhere near as strong as it was before he got to it. Because he came back from his break between the second and third season and myself... I think Guy, I don't think Ernie was involved reading yet, but Susan, we all were like, Gene, oh my God, oh my God, you got to read the first three scripts. There's some serious problems, <laughs> including Ensigns of Command, uh-huh. which was one of the first ones of that season. Um, because the writer, I'll spare her, I won't mention her name. She had in the script that the female scientist would not help Data unless he had sex with her. And it was in more than one scene mm. that, that he had to have sex with her. And we were freaking out, as was Brent. Okay. Right. And Gene read it and, and shot out a memo so fast. His first day back, right? <laughs> and the memo to everybody, not just the writer of the script, but to everybody on the staff, uh, Cooper Building and Hart, was, I will not have my character used as a <laughs> 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 And he took out all that. Right. And, yeah. and fixed that one up and fixed up um, who watches the watchers family, obviously, you know, anything, anything Ron Moore. Well, that was end of the third beginning of the fourth. OK, I'm jumping seasons here. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time Ron was on board, Gene had far less of that to worry about. But at the beginning of the third season, there were still a lot of of issues of people not understanding, you know, what his philosophy was how his characters were to be treated, not, as he used to say, sidelining his characters to star your own. That was a no-no. And it was amazing how many scripts came in, in, in you know, final draft state that they had been told to go ahead and write, and yet they just didn't get it. And, and Gene, who kept trying to step away, he really, he hoped to at the end of the first season yeah. of Next Gen, um, he would have to come in and, and do these rewrites. And as... Several people would say, I think Bob Justman, chief among them, that Gene could take a script that didn't work 
and in a couple of days, over a weekend, turn it around and, and the dialogue would jump off the page and just, it worked. And he didn't, he wasn't asking for extra money. This was just making it right for his philosophy. It was his philosophy that made the original series connect with the audience. They wanted to know, as Gene used to say, that we survive somehow through the 20th century. We're now in the 21st, but we somehow survive through the 20th century with dignity. It's all not, it doesn't all end in a flash and a bomb, as he used to say. And that we head out there peacefully to explore, not, not to expand, to explore as scientists, not as military. And, and he said it so many times, it changed slightly from time to time. But I mean, he used to talk about how man right now is, is barely one step beyond throwing rocks at the moon out of fear. Right. Right. Um, and that all it takes for us to hate somebody else is that we're from this side of the hill and that they're from that side of the hill and therefore they're them and we're us. And, you know, this ridiculous um, separation that we do among ourselves still. Uh, things are nowhere near as advanced as they should be by now because this has been – it's almost 50 years. Yeah. You know, you got to realize that. But again, he he didn't understand that 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 his – that making something that he wanted and that he loved and that said who he was would have such an impact because he'd been writing for years at this point. And people would later ask him, you know – did you know when you were making Star Trek that it would be such a huge success? And he said, if I knew how to do that, every show I made would have been, you know, like Star Trek. That, you know, all the other shows that he made, none of them ever had that impact. But this was the one venue, this first time ever, uh, a continuing uh, a Star Trek or science fiction series with a continuing cast of characters uh, going from place to place to place week after week. That, you know, in a spaceship off the planet, voyage to the bottom of the sea, um, they were on Earth right. in our time. Lost in space, the well, don't want to discuss that. <laughs> uh, it started off okay, but it just got yeah. worse. It got yeah. worse. Erwin Allen, what can I say? <laughs> and um, time tunnel is mostly the past. Right. Didn't so much deal with the future. So it, there had never really been a, a series like that. You know, Outer Limits certainly wasn't like that. The... Um, Twilight Zone, you know, they were completely separate stories, no, no connection. So he it gave him this opportunity to tell stories that he wanted to tell. Little morality plays, a lot of people refer to them as. Um, but again, so often about the human condition. And, and the one thing that was so important to him, and, and, and again, you see it in The Next Generation, was this idea that we come to a planet we we see what their issues are we know that it's wrong we won't interfere the prime directive mm-hmm. non-interference except for all the times that kirk ignores oh every the episode directive. basically yeah <laughs> okay. yeah no especially if there was a, a female yeah, if there's a woman yeah involved, yeah, yeah then, okay yeah, right. we, we oh, i mean I, i'm sure you've seen the the um Kevin Pollock routine. Yes. Where he says, uh, Spock, we're going to be down to the planet. I'm going to, uh, you talk to their leaders, I'll seduce their high priestess. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, 
I think I, I don't know that it was a huge surprise to Gene because he loved what he was doing so much on that particular show. But I think when it, it was all over and, and everybody kept telling him what a failure it was and he then started getting the invitations to the conventions and then to speak at colleges and, and you know, the, the hue and cry to bring it back. And, you know, and he, and he could have had it back on the air within a couple of years uh, or actually within a year originally. That oh, was wow. the first time they came back to him wow. when they discovered that the Nielsen ratings were actually wrong and, and the new um, demographics showed that, that it had been NBC's most uh, popular show when they canceled it. Wow. Uh, in in the most important demographic, not overall, right? But right. in the eighteen to thirty five, they said, "Congratulations, you just canceled your most successful show." So yeah, they came to Gene as early as seventy, and said, "Would you?" Can, and, and oh, he was not ready. Uh, <laughs> I was asking him for auction items for charity auctions, and he gave me this old briefcase, this old brown leather briefcase that that he'd had for years, and he'd just gotten a new one, and he hadn't had a chance to throw the old one away. And I think he was kind of attached to it. It had one of those punchy labels with oh, yeah. his name yeah. G. Roddenberry on the or E. Roddenberry on on the and he and he he uh, put a piece of stationery in his typewriter and he typed up. This is the briefcase that I carried during the original Star Trek production years, nineteen sixty six to nineteen sixty nine. Um, some of the blood is still on it from my dealings with NBC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, he wasn't quite ready to. Go back to work. And um, yeah, they asked again. And then the, the idea of an animated series came up. And at the time, as as Gene put it, he needed the money. So, you know, he had a family and um, he had uh, – uh, they were – he and Majel were trying. But the animated was a way to, to make some money, to help make ends meet. And uh, he allowed things – in that show that he would never have allowed otherwise because he never thought there'd be a live action Star Trek again. He thought it was mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. He really did. He didn't foresee movies. He didn't foresee any of that. You know, he didn't foresee, uh, uh only four years or three years later, a second attempt at a series. He, he didn't see that. He, if anything, they could have picked up where they left off, but he never thought there'd be a new show. So yeah, it was, he regretted it. And, and he, Right until he died, you know, whenever we would talk about it, he always considered the animated series to be somewhat apocryphal. But it didn't really happen. You know, it was like Bobby in the shower in Dallas. You know, it was all a dream. <laughs> well, you know, you're talking about this period in the, the mid-70s and, and what led up to the making of the movies. And you mentioned the, uh, the lecture tours that he would do. Huge turnouts. Well, and, it, you know, this is something that we talked a little bit on our previous supplemental with uh, David Gerald. About and uh, he he sort of felt like the the relationship that Gene had with Star Trek and and the public really kind of changed during that time, um, and it, it was sort of this period where Gene started to believe the hype and started to look at Star Trek as a philosophy. And I, I guess the question we pose to him is. Did Star Trek come first and then the philosophy second? Uh, or or at least did it just gel at that time that he was doing the lecture circuit and then, as you mentioned, got total control when he went into Next Gen? Yeah. Um, no, the philosophy came first. And there's evidence of that in some of his earliest work um, going going back to the 40s mm. when, he, when he was – God, when he was a pilot – um, he wrote 
a song for the Army Air Corps that became a big hit. Hmm. And it was about a pilot who did not want to be fighting in the war and just wanted to go home, just wanted it to be over. That, you know, it wasn't everybody out there, you know, yay, yay, wave the flag. It wasn't, it wasn't all that. Right. These people saw their friends killed. So he wrote it and I, I read it years and years later when David Alexander found it and showed it to me. And, and this was something Gene just didn't talk about. You know, he didn't talk about his warriors. He didn't talk about his years as a police officer. Um, we never knew he'd ever had to draw his gun. That that only came out after David was doing his interviews with him. And it wasn't to shoot a person. It was to shoot a dog oh. that would not leave. They, they were trying to get to this man who was injured, and the dog would not let them get to him, and Gene had to shoot the dog. Oh, wow. And it was, and it was, it was horrible for him. Absolutely. He had nightmares. Oh. Uh, he was an animal lover. Yeah, you know that's definitely still in the family. Um, no, I think his philosophy was there from early on. There's an episode of um, Bonanza where this young man doesn't want to learn to shoot. He doesn't want to, to carry a gun. He doesn't want to have to join the military, whatever. And his he's being treated horribly by his family because of this. And Ben Cartwright is is trying to help them understand that not everybody, you know, thinks the same way and, and wants to live the same way. And for the time, for the, I think it was early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, it was an interesting, I think it was Robert Walker Jr. playing the part. It was an interesting comment uh, on conscientious objection and and people who... You know, just didn't think the killing was the answer. And it was right. Gene. It right. was Gene. You know, it was it was something that you could see so often uh, in his writing um, before Star Trek. So that by the time he'd, he'd already produced one series, The Lieutenant, uh, he'd, he'd been head writer, if there was such a thing, <laughs> on Have Gun Will Travel. It wasn't really an official position, but basically that's what it became. And he, he'd written for so many shows on television. Um he, he knew what he wanted to write and Star Trek gave him this opportunity. And as he said it for years and Major will continue to say it, that by putting it on uh, purple planets with polka dot people, they could get it over the heads of the censors <laughs> because they wouldn't get it. And, and sometimes it was so obvious what they were talking about. Let that be your last battlefield. Sure. How could you not see what they were talking about? And yet it went yeah. right over the heads of the censors. Yeah. They didn't get – because you did not talk race back then. It was so close at that point to the race riots and everything that it was, it was a hot-button issue. You did not talk about it. And yet there they are saying, you know, the only difference that I can see is that he's black on one side and, and you're black on the other side. And, right. you know, oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, it was almost over the head with a baseball bat. It was so obvious. But, you know, they – they got away with things that nobody else could back yeah. then, you know, discussing sexual equality and, and um, certainly uh, religion, politics, um, population control. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was there was it was almost as if they were trying to piss off the um, censors and, and the network. But they they got out so many great stories that i'm trying to remember who the comedian is it makes you go hmm right it makes mm -hmm, you think mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. uh, i know you couldn't see that i put my hand up to my you, head you did all vouch yeah, for okay that. Yeah. <laughs> um so 
the audience, certainly the 18 to 35-year-olds, especially the college students, they, they got it. Yeah. And they dug it, as we used to say back then. <laughs> and they wanted more of it. And to actually get the man who created it to stand up there on a stage and, and tell you about it and to be able to ask him questions was unheard of. It had never happened before. Right. No producer of a series has ever had that relationship with an audience. George Lucas, to a certain extent later, not even Spielberg, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- There's been very few people who have had a connection like that. It's, it's pretty unique. It really is. You know, um, in that list of topics that you brought up, uh, you mentioned sexual equality. Ken, I think you might have a, a comment or a question about sexual equality as well, portrayed in Star Trek. Well, it's a debate that we actually have um, with um, listeners to Mission Log quite a bit. Um, Is it a mass debate? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, no, we have this ongoing debate with our audience over whether we should address sexism. In Star Trek. On the one hand, I mean, there are people who say, eh, come on. It was the mid to late 60s. It's a product of its times. Yeah. Um, and, and they were not wearing miniskirts, by the way. What were they wearing? Scants. Oh. It, okay. was a, it was a pair of shorts with a fringe. Uh-huh. Okay. It was, it was not a miniskirt. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, if Chapel had bent over, that would have been it. They'd been off the air. <laughs> no, it was a pair of shorts. Yeah. You can see it in, in several episodes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not even the costumes or the or the, or the wardrobe, yeah. although that's part of it. I mean, so on the one hand, you have people saying it's a product of the time. On the other hand, you have, I mean, 21st century um, uh, uh, girls, young women and women. I mean, and I'm, so I'm doing the whole age range there and not just you know, saying yeah, yeah. girls. O- old chicks and young chicks. Yeah. <laughs> sure, if you want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who have a really hard time getting past the sexism of the original series. Rod and I were doing an interview on NPR uh, back just around the time that Into Darkness came out. And one of the producers wanted to ask that question. And it was obvious that it was something that rankles her. And I don't blame her. Yeah. I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, was there ever a discussion of sexism as a topic you know, around the original series and even some in the next generation, although I think it is less of an issue in the next generation. And and in your opinion, is it a topic worth considering when we consider Star Trek, especially the original series, but Star Trek as a whole? Yeah. Gene used to say that despite the fact that they were making a show about and, – and at the time they were making it, they didn't know it was the 23rd century, but what turned out to be the 23rd century um, humans, he said – we're making it for a 20th century North American audience, which skews male. So they had to – I mean otherwise he said the, the, uh, the ship would have been half women and, and probably almost half Asians if you wanted to really be realistic. But obviously that wasn't going to happen. The network certainly would never – he wanted it to be half men, half women from the beginning. And the network said, no, the audience would think there's too much hanky-panky going on. So he said, okay, so we'll make it a third women and two-thirds men because a third healthy women could certainly handle two-thirds men. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he, did, he did whatever he could to, to try and make it as, as fair as he could. But again, he was fighting censors. He was fighting networks. He was fighting front office. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a lot that he could do in the original series. But he did have Uhura in a traditionally male position, the communications mm-hmm. officer, in, in today's Navy, rarely female. I mean, probably more now so than, than 50 years ago. Um, by the time of the next generation, he had Yar as the um, head of security. Again, traditionally a male position. 
Counselor Troy eh, could kind of go either way, I suppose. But unfortunately, Dr. Crusher, as strong as she was intended to be, you know, she's the caregiver. She's she's a little more than a nurse, but she's, you know, and she's the chief medical officer, again, traditionally the male role in the Navy. But, um, you know, they, they tried to, I mean, they, they finally came around with a female captain with Kate Mulgrew, but that, that took even longer. I don't think the studio would ever have allowed that in, in Gene's time. Um, he tried. Honestly, he tried. Uh they even put scants on the men at the beginning of the first season of The Next Generation yeah. to say, look, yeah. you know, this is a utopia, right? But no, it, it didn't work. And yeah, they they make the female characters sexy and they have amazing hair and, and all that. Um, and, and poor Marina was in that, she called it intergalactic cheerleading outfit the first season, which she really hated. But, okay, so it it was not where it should have been for the show that it was in the sixties. It tried harder in the eighties. Um, you know, Gene was certainly open to it, but again, you know, he didn't write every single episode. He didn't cast every single part. You know, he, he didn't design all the wardrobe and he, you know, he would have as much input as he could. But again, he knew that they were now making it for a late 20th century audience, North American, mostly skewing male. So, why yeah. has Star Trek not been able to address LGBT issues in a significant way? Yeah, right. You know, um, uh, we, we've discussed this question before. Do, I'm sorry. Do you have a can opener? Because this is a can of worms. <laughs> well, we, we've discussed it before in a lot of uh, uh, places. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll be getting to more of it in our show. And, you know, TNG had its episode, The Outcast. But I, I think there are a lot of people who felt kind of. Written by a woman. Uh, well, yes. Jerry yeah. Taylor. Yeah. A lot of people felt maybe that came up short, uh, not strong enough. What? Her script, and I, and I love that script wasn't about gay straight. It was about intolerance of difference. Mm -hmm. And and that's obviously a serious problem that, that gays and uh, people of color, so many different people, uh, religious people, you know, they have to deal with the fact that if they're different than everybody else, they're, they're going to face a certain stigma, or, yeah. uh, prejudice, whatever. So she, she wrote a great script there. Um, as early as before we even got going on the first season – David was pushing his story um, about having the two gay characters, one who's a caregiver and one who's a security guard. Gene asked me to read it. I read it and he asked me what I thought of it. And I said, I was offended. You know, as a gay man, I was offended by the characters. They were stereotypes. It was embarrassing and it was throwing it in the face of the audience. The audience back in the mid 80s didn't want gay characters thrown at them strictly for the sake of saying, look, there's gays. Yeah. It, it, there was absolutely no relevance to the story whatsoever. None. It, it, it could have been anybody. It didn't have to be a gay couple. It, it was like something they didn't in the comics at one point. So, and, and Gene killed that. So he kept challenging the, the gay audience. He said, there's got to be a good writer out there who can come up with a relevant story that doesn't require stereotypes and isn't going to offend any of our audience either way. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jerry did. Mm -hmm. Seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't a gay straight story. Right. The one that she did. So she, yeah, she sort of addressed it, but no, I, um, Bob Justman and I talked about 
David's story. And and Gene was all for him writing a story that had gay characters in it, but not the way he did it. And and that's why Gene felt or sorry, uh, David felt that Gene had somehow reneged on his promise. He didn't. It's just David hadn't delivered what Gene said he wanted. So, yeah, I mean, to this day, David's very upset about it. He thinks it was the best thing he ever wrote. No, I'm sorry. David's written a lot of much better stuff than that. Uh, some of the stuff that he was writing back in the 70s and 80s was just amazing, uh, his his novels. But, um, no, I I felt that the introduction of those characters was literally just to throw them on the screen to say, look, there's queers. That's yeah. it. And I, I was offended by it. I, yeah. Honestly, I couldn't imagine that David couldn't have done something better than that. 25 years after yeah. Next Gen premieres, though, we, we, we're still kind of in the same place and we're still asking this question. Oh, I know. I mean, Gene, Gene toyed with the idea of Jordy being gay. Wow. I don't think LeVar would have been too thrilled. But, um, hmm. yeah, it was, it was a possibility. But, no, eventually we discovered that he likes, you know, fake chicks on the holodeck. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. She wasn't fake. She just wasn't there at the time. To wrap it up, a couple of last questions. Here. What, okay. what are Star Trek's greatest failings? Wow. Okay, Gene used to accept all of the praise only to a certain point, but he never accepted that Star Trek had changed the world. He said it's changed the lives of countless people, but unfortunately, there's, there's nothing yet that has changed our world to the extent that, that I think the fans would like to believe it has. Um, we still have um, slavery in, in corners of the mm-hmm. world. Um, and in, in this country, I was just reading something about some family in New York from the Middle East who had brought their slaves over with them who basically couldn't get out of the apartment in New York. And, and one of them actually escaped. And, they, and, and these were you know, respectable people. Yeah. But it's still very acceptable in some areas that these, you know, they're not servants, they're slaves. Um, they're not paid. They, they have no freedom. Um, child labor in, in so many countries, say Walmart, um, the, the, the terrible injustices that still exist. Forget war. That's, I don't know if we're ever going to get over that. I think Gene would have liked that, that Star Trek might have had more of an impact in reality, but he knew that it, it didn't and it wouldn't. Um, and it would have been arrogant to believe it. And, and he, he just really wasn't that arrogant, seriously. Um, he was proud of what he created, but not too much. And what do you think are Star Trek's like, like best moments? I mean, what are, what are some of its greatest successes? Well, where it has affected people's lives, not on a global scale, but in, in pockets, the scientific community, um, the medical community, um, you know, people – oh, this is so difficult to say. People who are differently abled, it spoke to them and said, in, in Star Trek's future, you will be like everybody else. You'll be just another person. You're not going to be ostracized because you're different. Um, the, the thing that those of us who go to conventions know is that you see a lot of people who are very different at the conventions, but they are simply your fellow Star Trek fan. And for them, it's one of the few times in their lives that they feel fully accepted for who they are. 
for for whatever the difference is you know it could be a speech impediment it could be a physical disability it could be you know the color of their skin um, everybody is equal you know in in Star Trek and I think that's certainly something that Gene was proud of and something that Geordi uh, LaForge represented um, so that that's something to be proud of the the awards for the writing um, not not for the effects. You know, come on. You know, it, it, it's not a, a space show, shoot them up, whatever. That, that's secondary to the story. That's what's the most important. That's certainly something to be proud of. Uh, and that's the legacy of it. But I know that Gene would have loved for it to have been more. But with all the interference, certainly on the original series, with his health failing the way that it was during the second and, and losing control of it slowly um, by the fifth season, certainly, um, it just it wasn't going the direction he wanted. The last episode that he saw before he died was Silicon Avatar. Mm. And after it ended, he was swearing. He was saying, <laughs> they still don't get it because they established the evil entity, the crystal, uh, crystalline entity, and they kill it at the end. You know, it's like they stand around and watch while she does it. It's like, wow, okay, well, obviously they still don't get it because that's not a Star Trek story. And look at the movies. The majority of them establish the villain, kill him at the end. Well, Richard, thank you so very much for doing this. Aren't we just starting? I, we are. I, oh. I, you, you're coming back. Okay. <laughs> you're coming back. Yeah. And we get to do this again. Sure. Uh, clearly, this Anytime. is uh, a topic that we can go on and on about. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, we really thank Richard Arnold again for his time and his terrific insight into his time of Star Trek and his time with Gene Roddenberry. You know, I think after we were done with that interview, Ken and I were still kind of struggling over bread and circuses um, because it just didn't quite sound like Gene Roddenberry. And we were still having trouble putting pieces together in our minds about uh, what went down to make that episode. Well, it just so happens that uh, not too far after we recorded that interview, we got uh, some transcripts from an interview that Gene did uh, only about a year before he passed away. And we are going to publish excerpts from that at missionlogpodcast.com as part of our Discovered Document series. We'll post some of it now, and uh, we'll keep posting more of it later. Um, but he has some really choice words about bread and circuses. This one might be controversial, but I welcome that. I think it's great. Um, he has some choice words about the show and about the people who worked on it. So uh, enjoy. Again, it's at Discovered Documents at missionlogpodcast.com. Discovered Documents.